Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelsey Kaywood, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Cece Sung about her new book, The Economics of Gender in China, Women, Work, and the Glass Ceiling. The book uses cross-disciplinary and economics perspectives to understand gender in China and women in management in the Chinese business context. The book underscores the enduring cultural stereotypes that Chinese women face in the family, organization, and society. Cece, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Kelsey. It's a great pleasure. I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Right now, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Weber College of University of Erfurt, My work in general wants to address gender inequality in organizational settings and to navigate a path to gender equality. How I came to the economics of gender in China is related to my personal experience. I was raised in a girls' school in Hong Kong, which indeed became an important source of empowerment. After my college years in Beijing, I went to the U.S. and Germany, seeing there were more and more female becoming leaders. Then I realized that the Chinese case represents an interesting dissociation in the performance of gender equality. On the one hand, we're seeing more gender equality in education and some aspects of labor market outcomes. But on the other hand, women are becoming less and less visible in top leadership positions in China. That's why I decided to dive further into the question and write a book about this. Wow. So there really is um, kind of this long personal connection to the material and to this book that you ended up writing. I was wondering if you could set the scene for us. So at a high level, what is China doing well in terms of women's economic empowerment and what is it doing poorly? If we look at available report, it is not difficult to find that China has achieved remarkable progress in terms of several indicators of women's economic empowerment. For example, we are seeing more women enroll in tertiary education than men, which has been one of the highest globally. Women in China also enjoy a fair equal wage with its fellow counterparts. However, despite this exceptional achievement, Chinese women are left out in senior management positions. In the corporate sector, numbers of female leaders are still lagging behind men by 80%. Wow. All right. Um, So in kind of looking at these issues, your book develops a theoretical framework to study gender in China, especially women in management. So can you talk a little bit about the economics of identity framework and economic theory of culture that informed your work? 
Well, let me try to put the theories in a way that our audience won't try to press the forward button and jump to our <laughs> next conversation, okay? We appreciate that. Thank you, Cece. <laughs> Basically, the most important thing for economics is to understand the motivation of the people we study. For example, I want to understand why there are so many differences between women and men in the corporate management. Economics says it's because of differences in education, training, personality, or simply discrimination. But identity economics say what's missing here is the motivation, the notion so important to us that has a great impact on how we think about ourselves and how we act. So when I look at gender in China again, I take a step further from economics and try to find out what are really important to women and men in China. We all know China can be different in certain ways, especially the cultural part. And culture usually plays a key role in shaping motivations. Therefore, if we want to understand what notions are really important to women and men in China, we have to also understand the Chinese culture, which gives very important information about the context. Yeah, that was really apparent in the book, too, is how both economics and culture are important pieces of solving this gender inequality puzzle. In the book, you also discuss why the glass ceiling is an imperfect metaphor for women's advancement to top management positions. This struck me because um, it's so deeply lodged in the public discourse um, using this glass ceiling metaphor. So for folks who haven't read your book yet, can you talk a little bit about um, why the glass ceiling is an imperfect metaphor? Sure. The glass ceiling has been so widely used in different contexts, but it doesn't mean the metaphor is perfect. On the one hand, for lay audience, the glass ceiling is indeed very easy to immediately capture what's facing women in becoming leaders. But on the other hand, because of its generality, the glass ceiling sometimes miss out the details. For example, it doesn't define what leads to the absence of women in certain positions, or it doesn't explain why we often see women being assigned to leadership positions in the time of crisis. Interesting. So are there any compelling alternatives, or do you think because it's so well-known and it's prominent that we should just stick with that metaphor? There are alternatives proposed over the years, some of which might sound familiar, like the sticky floor and the glass cliff. Overall, the alternatives are much less recognized than the glass ceiling. Given the level of discussions from the public discourse and scholarships, the glass ceiling is much more than just a metaphor. The term is really helpful in informing the challenges women facing and encouraging discussions on solving the issue. That's great. Yeah, the public awareness is a huge piece of why it's continued to stick. Um, Now I want to turn to the question of stereotypes, um, which is one of the focal points of the book. What do you see as some of the most significant cultural stereotypes related to gender in China? And what are the sources of those stereotypes? I must say cultural stereotypes are all quite significant in the sense that they define not only how we think, but also what we should be doing. One example is the notion of emphasizing men's primary obligation to work outside the home. 
while women stay in the private sphere as the caregiver. Although it, some, it comes from the traditional social practice and Confucian doctrines, the notion is such a great deal of regulating work decisions of women and men. Cultural stereotypes also tend to evolve over time, be, being partly shaped by the public discourse. For example, in recent years, the notion of leftover women gains its prominence, which refer unmarried women over the age of 25 as not ideal. The term has profound implications on women's marriage decisions. It's fascinating to me how these are both similar to, but also very different from the sorts of cultural stereotypes that you find in other countries. Um, one thing that might surprise readers um, is the negative impacts to Chinese women's employment that resulted from the shift to market-oriented policies and privatization. Can you talk a little bit about what that shift was and the implications for women? Before 1978, women in urban China were assigned with jobs in the state-owned work units. When China decided to shift its economy from central planning to market-oriented in 1978, women were no longer guaranteed with a job and had to enter the labor market competition just like everyone else. What we've noticed is the emerging gender-discriminative practices after the removal of collective job allocation. The discrimination against women is most visible in the recruitment process. Nowadays, it's not surprising to see job advertisement explicitly state men only or men are preferred. During job interviews, female candidates are often asked about their marital and childbearing plans. Another aspect of the shift is the privatization in the state-owned sector, which has a more negative impact on working women than men. During the process of privatization, more women experience layoffs than men, which followed by a notable decline in female labor force participation and a widening gender income gap. For urban working women, the closure of care centers resulted from the privatization means women have to retreat to the home domain for family care work. That's great. I'm glad you touched on that urban-rural divide and how that that can um, lead to different outcomes for women in based off of their geographical location within China. The historical context is also really helpful that you provided. And related to that, I would I think it'd be productive to talk a little bit about the role of the state. Um, how did the state shape women's roles in the family and in employment, both in the past and, and in present China? The state always play a key role in shaping women's lives in contemporary China. As for the state, women's role in the family or employment are meant to fulfill its development agenda. For example, during the early years after 1949, the state aimed for modernization. Therefore, what we have seen were series of policies that vowed to liberate women from the traditional family system and mobilize women to join the workforce just as men. Around the same period during which there was excess labor supply, campaigns were launched to convince women to return to their family and resume the role of primary homemaker. 
what we have seen today about women's role in the family and employment are complex and constantly changing, along with the state's political agenda. On the one hand, the state introduces new development plans to remove to improve women's rights in the area of education, work, and health. On the other hand, women's family role is emphasized again with the introduction of three-child policy and campaigns that attempt to increase the national's fertility rate. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've been closely watching some of the fertility-related work coming out of China right now. Um, One thing that's interesting as someone who studies this from the United States is your point about well-established research on women that's based on Western context and how it can't always be applied to the Chinese case or to other non-Western settings. So in addition to this issue of the theory not translating, you also talk about how some of the more granular translations of words like feminism are difficult to translate into Chinese or might have multiple translations or new interpretations. I was wondering if you could give us some examples of where a quote-unquote Western-oriented approach or research finding couldn't be readily applied to the Chinese context. Sure. Um, Let's take networking as an example. When we talk about helping women in management to break the glass ceiling, networking always comes up in the agenda. However, in the Chinese case, networking is not always helpful for women. It's mainly because of the cultural stereotypes against women and the way of networking practices in China. Most networking activities are carried out after office hours. For Chinese women who are meant to focus on family matters outside working hours, networking can bring emotional pressure or even reputational damage to their careers. Another example is the concept of feminism, just like you mentioned, Kelsey, which we find to be quite different from the Western interpretation of women's rights. In the Chinese case, women's rights are state-constructed. In other words, what women's rights are and what women's rights should be are explicitly defined by the state. The Chinese state is dominating feminism in China. Therefore, if we use the Western interpretation of feminism to look, look at China, it's likely to miss some important aspects. Right, definitely. And you point out, too, that Western research itself may project a cultural view on China. How did your review of the English and Chinese research lead you to that conclusion? Basically, I took two approaches. First is to evaluate the development of research focus and methods between scholarship produced by Chinese scholars and non-Chinese scholars. What we have found is that political factor that creates differences in this focus and methods. As an example, when the concept of gender was introduced into the West in the 1980s, we've seen a clear shift of non-Chinese scholarship that used gender perspectives to study women in China. The second approach is to look at the relevant concepts from Western and Chinese discourses. Let's take the term gender again as an example. It's clear in the Western discourse, gender is socially constructed and different from the notion of sex. 
But in Chinese discourse, the English term gender can have several forms of translations in Chinese, and it remains debatable which translation can best capture the essence of gender. Therefore, we begin to notice there's something more than just linguistic translation. The cultural aspect that underlying a concept often is difficult to transport across nations. Really interesting, and thanks for further unpacking how、um, some of these words are difficult to translate over.、Um, in Chapter Five, I wanted to discuss some of the different forms of workplaces and the implications for gender、um, equality. So, in China, there's many different forms of workplaces, especially across time, whether that's state-owned enterprises or private businesses. And as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, work units played such a major role in workers' daily lives. Is there a common process or processes through which the workplace is gendered, even though there's so much variation in workplace types? Yes, although companies in China vary in different ways, but there are still some common features. For example, when we look at some of the largest Chinese companies, it's not difficult to notice the role of the party in management practices, sometimes in the process of personnel management. Gender dynamic in these companies are shaped by the prominent party. Besides, most leaders in China are men, who are the main decision makers of the rules in the workplace. Awesome, that's really interesting.、Um, regarding the interviews you collected, I was wondering, like, first of all, if you could just start off、um, talking about the process of collecting these interviews.、Um, I know the book could only include select snippets of the conversations you had with Chinese managers. I talked to almost fifteen male and female managers in the last three years in order to find out what women are facing in some of the world's largest Chinese companies. They have years of management experiences in state-owned or privately owned companies. To have interviews with them, I spent hours in their offices, and sometimes I was able to observe their workplace dynamics and talk to the employees, which really helped me to get to know some of the work environment. The interviews overall are very inspiring. What came up? Unexpected was a story of one female manager who broke the glass ceiling and later decided to quit the senior management position for a retreat to her family role, despite the fact that she lives only with her husband and they have no kids. It was so straightforward in our conversation that cultural stereotypes really have strong impact on Chinese women's career decisions. Yeah, it's great that that story has stuck with you, and I, I remember it being included in the book as well. So these were before COVID, right?、Um, yes, these were be-、uh, our first meeting were before COVID, but after that we have regular meetings with uh, with my uh, interviewees. Also, interesting, and I'm I'm glad that unlike so many、uh, researchers right now that you weren't disrupted by. Covid in terms of collecting all of these interviews that inform the book. So after wrapping up this project, what future research do you believe is needed? I think the future、uh, research needs to be both、um, 
uh, very focused and also uh, practical. Um, I think this also relates to what I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. So um, on the one hand, I work on my research uh, and I look at what empower female to becoming leaders in the business uh, who are entrepreneurs and what are the implications about this empowerment to our future generations who just enter or prepare um, for the labor market. And the other part, the practical part, I'm also working with different organizations to navigate the practical ways to best supporting women in management to break the glass ceiling. That's great that you've been able to translate these research findings into um, applied impact at these different firms. Um, and actually related to that, and I have realized you've taken up a lot of your time, but what are you working on now? Is it these applied projects, entrepreneurship? Do you want to talk a little bit more about either of those projects? Um Sure. So I can talk a little bit about the uh, my project about female entrepreneurs. So um, maybe it doesn't come up to uh, many people is that Chinese uh, Chinese women dominate some of the world's richest uh, female. And what I found is that many of these uh, female are um, self-made entrepreneurs. And many of them are located in the southern areas uh, of China. That's why I try to find out what's the stories behind their success and what's the source of empowerment, because this has much such a uh, great uh, implications, not only for the current uh, working women who want to start their own business or success in their own careers, but also for the future generations, uh, for women who just uh, graduate from college and decide to enter um, the labor market. So I think the success stories of uh, female entrepreneurs can have a lot of implications and can um can help uh, our next generation. I like the way that empowerment is embedded in this research idea. And I hope that at some point soon, I'll be able to interview you again when you're wrapping up that project. It sounds really fascinating and also intertwined into so many of the things that we talked about today. Um, That's it for today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, And thank you to all of our listeners who are tuning in to hear about your book project. Um, Before we wrap up, is there any last comments or things that you want to share, Cece? Um, I think it's really a great opportunity to have uh, to invite me here to share my work. And then I hope that um, the gender or the economics of gender in China uh, will be a good read for you. And uh, and I hope we uh, it can help to have more people to take uh, to pay attention to the gender issues in China and to support the development of gender equalities um, in in our society. That's great, Cece. And if our listeners want to get your book, how can they get it? Um, so the book uh, is actually open access. So uh, you, ju- you just need to Google it and then you can download it for free. And so um, it's very easy to access. Even better. Okay, everyone, did you hear that? You can get this book for free online and it's wonderful. I will vouch for it. Um, it was a great read as I was thinking about uh, different topics for our conversation today. 
Alrighty. Well, thank you so much, Cece. I hope you have a great day in China and um, looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Kelsey. Alrighty. Bye, Cece. Bye.